The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Ever have one of those days where you're just jolted awake an hour, maybe even two hours before your alarm goes off? Your mind is flooded with everything you've got to get done. From your morning routine, the people to keep track of, your work meetings, needing to get the boiler fixed. And it doesn't stop there, because you might also be worrying about whether you used the right words in a meeting last week, whether your partner's mad at you, whether you'll ever be good enough. Ah, the twisted comfort of overthinking. You might have seen the factoid going around the internet as of late that in fact, Everyone has a constant monologue going on in their head. Well, I definitely do. And it's something I can relate to today's guest about as well. Meredith Arthur is Chief of Staff at 220, an in-house incubator at Pinterest. And she wrote the book, Get Out of My Head, Inspiration for Overthinkers in an Anxious World. I started by asking Meredith if she considers herself an overthinker and why. say actually that I'm in recovery. I'm a recovering overthinker. Before I knew that I actually had generalized anxiety disorder, I was diagnosed at age 40, which is now seven years ago, in the middle of a very intense slew of startups. But before that, I would proudly describe myself as an overthinker on social media. Was it because I thought it made me smart? I don't know. I just know that I spent a lot of time thinking about things and rehashing, and I didn't understand that that was something that I should work on. How do you know you're recovering? I Well, I think it is one of those things like all recovery where you're sort of always in the state of recovering. So for me, it's more about noticing. Now that I'm tuned in, now that I've been given this knowledge – that I've been told like, hey, you, your physical symptoms are connected to what's going on emotionally and what's going on with your thinking. Now that I have that information, I'm able to interrupt some of those patterns earlier on. I just have been reteaching myself for seven years how to avoid those cul-de-sacs and those sort of whirlpools of thought. Yeah. So what's your relationship with anxiety right now at this moment, seven years after your diagnosis? I would describe it as a familiar companion Mm -hmm. that I'm learning to spot and recognize and not try to fight. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder around this whole, your anxiety is there to help you idea that gets bandied about quite a bit because I I don't think that this companion of mine is here to help me very much. I think it's just a sort of biological fact that I was born with and that 
I am always working to live in harmony with as best I can. Okay. So I know this about you. You you are not one of these anxiety is a superpower people. I agree that for, for a lot of us, it is something we're born with. But almost for that reason, I feel that it is a it's both data and a gift that we can tap into the same way that we might tap into one of our other gifts. Like we happen to have a good sense of humor <laughs> or we're good at math. Yeah. You know, anxiety itself is neither good nor bad. It is. And when you can recognize what it's trying to tell you, you can try to manage it to lessen its bite, to literally take the fangs off of it. Or you can be like, huh, why is this beating making me super anxious? And then hopefully decide what to do. I wonder... I was just talking to someone about this idea of sort of the emotional continuum. Mm -hmm. And I feel like nervousness and sort of those smaller emotions that feed into anxiety are different than anxiety. But I also don't want to get overly pedantic about it. Like, yes, the companion is here. It's in my life. It shows up and it's probably pointing at something. But sometimes it's not. Like, I'm not sure my fixation on whether our garbage is getting taken away every Monday morning <laughs> is like helping me in any way, but it's certainly constant. <laughs> My husband drives with like lozenges in his seat to suck on while he drives. And I had an almost panic attack the other day in the car thinking that he might suck on a lozenge while driving our kids and choke to death and kill everybody. Yeah, yeah. And I literally spent like an hour just fixating on the lozenges, but I couldn't talk to him about the lozenges because he'd be like, oh my God, you really, <laughs> you, you, this, you're out of control. So, for, <laughs> I know. so yes, I, I know, but I also feel like at a deep root, the lozenge fear is really about something. I think that even the highest level doctors studying this stuff on fMRI don't actually know the answer to this question. I know. That's the truth. And I would never say that, <laughs> but my approach is, you know, the end all be all by any means. I think the reason that I bristle around anxiety as a superpower is that you're actually the powerful one for dealing with this biological mm. hitch that you have going on. The illustrator in my book, this incredible artist, she said to me, anxiety is my superpower. And my response was, you are the superpower. Anxiety <laughs> is something you you live with and you, you sort of live in relation to. And maybe, again, maybe that's just sort of, I don't know, I don't want to be dissecting it too much. But I will say one thing that I do appreciate about anxiety is that learning to communicate about it has brought me a lot closer to people in my life and people I don't even know like you, where we feel we know each other and we have sort of a safety and security around that. And I actually think that's a really beautiful thing. I do too. I love that for anxiety. Um, <laughs> so, so Meredith, tell us about your job. Tell us about your career. You've had, you've had a storied career. What do you do now every day for work? I've had such an amazing, unexpected career. Right now, my job is chief of staff of Pinterest Innovation Lab. Mm. 
And it has been quite a journey to understand my deeper skill set and how best to use it. Mm -hmm. As chief of staff, I get to work with some of the most incredible engineers and designers to build new products, many of which are grounded in the idea of creative play and definitely have emotional well-being undertones as well. And I do everything. I mean, everyone on the team kind of does everything. So I, I write the content. I... For example, working on Pinterest TV, I helped find and build a team that would run Pinterest TV with a new skill set for Pinterest of producers and just incredible new ideas and exploring them and bringing them to life with a small, passionate team of experienced people who want to be hands-on. So that's something that I really appreciate that at this stage in my career, 15 years in, I can still be making stuff and be very hands-on with the products that we're creating. And there are other people who are sort of like like that as well, who are interested in, in really making things. How do you build products with emotional well-being in mind? First of all, that's not something you hear very often from a social media platform. So, I mean, I am completely biased, obviously, but I've been at Pinterest for three years. I was brought in by one of the co-founders, and I, I've worked very closely with the CEO for years, and the intent is good. The intent is genuine. In particular, worked with Ben to build a totally free app through a nonprofit he had established called How We Feel that helps people to track their emotions based on the work of Dr. Mark Brackett at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. So you check in, you sort of mark, hey, I'm, I'm doing a podcast with Maura, I'm sitting at my house, and I'm feeling energized. Mm. And over time, you start to see patterns in that behavior. You start to see patterns in those emotions. And just simply the act of tuning in and asking yourself how you feel is itself a strategy. Yep. And then there are 40 strategy videos and 10 Emotion 101 course videos in this app as well. But the goal is to help everyone have access to the information. And that's why it's free. And I'm just so proud and, and thankful to have gotten to work on that. Do you feel now you're where you were meant to be in your career? I feel like it all makes a lot more sense than it ever has in the past. I don't even know if there's such a thing as meant to be. But if there were, yes, I am. <laughs> this is a job where I'm able to bring my love of teams and how they work together with my passion and endless curiosity for emotional well-being. Okay, I want you to tell the story because I was listening to that incredible meditation podcast you were oh on. God, I just found that, it that riveting. Is an amazing podcast. Yeah. Because you were talking about how you were at the, all these startups and you felt like that's what you should be doing and you were trying to be cool and they were talking to you and Kanye gifts and you were oh like, what? Yes. And Meredith, like there was a time in your career when <sighs> you were, you were not so settled and you no. were like bouncing around the startup landscape in San Francisco. Oh. I have this image of you like at like Starbucks and then going to a startup and like being like, ah, and then going back out. It's just the way that you talk about this period in your life where I think you worked for five different startups. Five different ones. Yeah. Five different startups. You said in a podcast, you said, I learn how to tell people I love data. 
And people love to hear this for some reason. So that's why I say it. Like, was this was something you learned in your journey interviewing There's for so five startups? There's so much that I learned that people want to hear. And <laughs> what if did you, you learn? say it enough, it doesn't make it true. It also doesn't mean that the person that they think they're hiring is who you are. So yes, I got very good at telling my story, which basically was I started working on this food magazine, which we Mm -hmm. then sold to CNET and that sold to CBS and I made videos and I loved it. I was a video producer. Then I got frustrated that people weren't seeing my videos. So this was the key moment. I switched to become a product manager and a product Mm. manager loves data. (laughs) Like, can you you tell the audience... (laughs) Like, why is a product manager such a cool thing in Silicon Valley? Right. Because a product manager, you know, this has changed over the course of my career, but a few times switched back and forth. But a product manager at that time made all decisions about what got built and who you're trying to reach. So if suddenly your video platform isn't supported anymore because it's determined not to have potential for revenue – the power is out of your hands to determine your future. And I never wanted that. What I wanted always more than anything else is the security that comes with knowing I can make my own choices. And I think I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people feel that way. So I always wanted to get to the point where I had enough information that I wouldn't have to just listen, that I could act. And that's why you love data. That's why you love data. And so in order to do that, I had to love data. (laughs) I really had to love data. So I remember just being very confused about who I was and what I was good at. Because I could kind of be good at lots of things. But this period of bouncing between startups was super interesting in retrospect because I got a ton of feedback in a very short period of time about what I was and was not good at. And through that, I don't know if I ever would have had such a steep learning curve about myself if I hadn't gone through those job experiences and probably being a young parent. I don't know. There were a lot of things at play at the same time. And another thing was the medication I was on. I was on a migraine medication that was sort of, it almost felt like I was high all day. It was called Topamax. And It just really affected me as well. And so all of a sudden, things that might have seemed stable were not, like who I was, my personality, what I cared about. And I have a friend who is a famous person, but also an amazing person named Molly Ringwald. And we were (laughs) at breakfast together one day when I was really loving data. And she said, Meredith, what's going on with you? I'm not seeing that creative side of you that I always used to see. And I told her, I mean, I tell her I will love her forever for that because it was a real wake up call to me that I had drifted so far from any moorings about who I was and and what nourished me. That was the beginning of the big change, I would say, around (laughs) not loving data as much. I've always tried to sort of break molds. So I was in this role where I was doing both content and product. And I skated through that for numerous jobs. And it was always that the places that I was working wanted my content expertise. And I wanted to learn 
the power of product. I wanted to be a product thinker and to build. And what I learned eventually was that people were always going to see me as a content person Mm -hmm. because that's what I really am deep down. That's my passion and what I'm great at and learning to find the right environment where I could use some of the product skills that I had. So when Evan Sharp, Evan Sharp is the co-founder of Pinterest. He said, Hey, Mm -hmm. I'm looking for someone who has product experience, content experience and mental health experience. And I mean, I was like, well, I'm, I'm the only person. Are there, could there possibly be another person besides me that has lived this strange reality? So one thing that was always really important in, in my startup experience was I learned how people perceived me hmm. and also how to surprise them. So I am a content person, but I also am very tuned into how products work. Mm-hmm. So it was like always understanding that there's sort of a major and minor like a college degree. Wow. So going deep into not knowing who you are, that that is a very confusing state to be in. I'm sure many other people have experienced this as well. There was sort of a derealization quality to it. And again, I had been on this migraine medicine that had like sort of confused things. So I, I joined a startup that I was the only woman. I was 10 years older than everyone else. And it was a very bleeding edge technology. It was a suite of keyboard apps before there really was a keyboard in iOS. So these are people sort of building for two versions of iOS out. And I arrived and my computer was sitting at a desk at a WeWork in the Tenderloin. In San Francisco. Yes. And Tenderloin is like the, you know this sort of very dirty neighborhood, but it's also seen as cool. And there was a huge sausage restaurant that all the startups would go to across the street called (laughs) Show Dogs. I remember really well. I was hired at Show Dogs and fired at Show Dogs. So I went in and opened my computer and I looked at everyone around me and I was trying to understand where they were because they were all together on some sort of D. I was like, is that hip camp? It was some sort of DM platform. And I Googled it, Slack. This was Slack in beta. And I found my way onto downloading and installing the software and getting into the space. And as soon as I arrived, it was just like the loudest. It was so quiet in the room. No one was talking. But in this Slack space, it was loud as can be. Like everyone was just like sort of shouting gifts at each other. And... You know, one of the things I was there for was to think about our point of view, the voice and tone. And there were some things that the guys would talk about that I wasn't sure what our stance should be. And one of those in particular was the word hipster. (laughs) (laughs) What, like, is this brand hipster? Is it not? I was like, you know, I've spent a long time debating the word hipster in my other jobs (laughs) and like, you know, we came to sort of an understanding of what we meant by it and what do we mean by it here? And so I asked that question on Slack and all of a sudden, Kanye gifts (laughs) just came (laughs) floating at me like one after the next. And it was like, Kanye doesn't ask questions about hipster. (laughs) Kanye doesn't care. Be like Kanye. You know the answer. You know, it was just very like sort of bro culture-y. And so I tried to love data and I tried to love Kanye. 
um, I would listen to Kanye and try to get into this mindset. <laughs> and, oh my God. Yeah. It was just, it was insanity. It was insanity. Like I would, I would never be in that situation now. I, if somebody were th- throwing a bunch of gifts at me, I would like go over and talk to them immediately. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So you're, so you're in this sort of surreal period of your life where you're on Topamax, which actually I was on years ago. It is a very, very sedative. Um, yes. Thank you for understanding. It's a hard thing to yes. describe to people that haven't experienced it. My husband said I would zone out for minutes at a time, not notice. Lost a ton of weight. I lost like 40 pounds. So I physically oh looked completely different and I sounded different and I would have short-term memory loss and sometimes I'd lose words and you know, it's it's pretty disturbing, I think. It was disturbing for my husband who finally said, you have to get off this. But you had these horrible migraines. I did. <laughs> You're right. I did. Now, thank goodness, eventually a neurologist said, hey, um, this is anxiety related as well. I mean, it's a neurological disorder, but like, you know, your system is out of whack and got me off the Topamax and onto Lexapro. And that helped a lot. So you went to a neurologist for your migraines. Yes. And I had been to her before. This was like my fourth time of seeing her. There was just something about this time where I think I came in with lots of different notes and all these meds that I was trying. And I was so hopped up, Mora. I was like, hey, I really want to talk about the vagus nerve because I think high vagal tone, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm just going on and on. And I just struck her with her experience like, this is what's happening here. And she said to me, I tell people this nearly every day and very few of them will listen to me. For the most part, they just say you're wrong and leave. Whereas I wanted to know everything that she had to say about this. And I suddenly realized she was right. I mean, the strangest thing about my experience is that I didn't know for 40 years what was happening. You didn't think of yourself as an anxious person? Absolutely not. The word worry never meant anything to me. I was a problem solver. Give me a problem, no matter how large, climate change, and I will attempt to solve it. 
And, oh you know, it's just, I, I thought any system could be improved that working hard enough to find an answer, enough research, and you could find a way. And You said about how you felt, I'm a spinning head of thoughts floating up in a body of pain. Oh, So once so... you unpacked that, could you find the spinning thoughts? The spinning thoughts were often around solving. And that's, again, why worry does not resonate for me. Because my overthinking was around solving everything. Anything that came up that I didn't fully understand and wasn't completely transparent to me, I would try to solve. So that was my version of worry. I just never thought of it that way. Did that make people happy when you were always solving their problems? <laughs> I had a lot of people that seemed to like to be around me, but I was exhausted. <laughs> I remember when I met my husband and he was a boyfriend at the time and he lived in Oakland. I lived in San Francisco across the bay from each other. And I went over to hang out at his house for a few days. And I said, I'm just going to leave my phone back at my house. I don't want anyone to be able to reach me. I'm just exhausted by them. And this was my problem. This was not their problem. It was my problem. I did not have boundaries. I did not understand how to do things less than 100%. And I just – now I talk about energy debt, and I was in massive energy debt all the time back then. So the neurologist told you you had generalized anxiety disorder. You were like, tell me more. I was like, oh, my God, you just lifted me off the earth turn me around and put me back down again. That's really how it felt. It felt like the world is the same, but I'm perceiving it so differently. It felt like I had this sudden door inside of myself opened and there was a whole new wealth of information. That's what's wow. so hard to I, – I, I've talked to very few people who have experienced this who had this part of themselves they didn't know about that was so intimate. Like – my relationship with anxiety, looking back, it's always been with me, but I didn't know it. I just didn't know it. And I think that has affected me so deeply in how I think about these topics. Like, how could I not have known? How could you not have known? I translated the words. And I think that's why the first thing I did when I came home from the neurologist was to start looking at how other people described the things that I experienced and that they all use the word worry. And it was almost like, oh, okay, this is a separate, <laughs> you know how you have to translate yourself for other people? Like I had uh -huh. to translate what anxiety meant to other people for myself. So you're like, well, worry is not me. Yeah. I was like, worry is definitely not me. Everything that I saw just said characterized by worry. And I was like, well, this is why I didn't know. None of this related to what I was experiencing. And I didn't even realize that overthinking was something that could negatively impact me. And that's where Beautiful Voyager, the site I work on, was born from the insight that the way people talk about this and the way they show it visually is often very unappealing. <laughs> but the topic itself is super fascinating. And I had endless amounts of curiosity. I just wanted to learn so much. And the feeling I had around that curiosity was very positive. Mm. Like, 
that's also why I was drawn to Pinterest because I felt like Pinterest understood design and understood mm-hmm. how to reveal things in a more complex way through design. Pinterest is also a great search engine, which I always find fascinating. It's true. Because it helps you find information, but visually, which is so great. I agree. I totally agree. So anxiety needs a product manager because it's funny. I mean, I grew up, I don't know about you, but of course, I grew up in a culture where like everyone was anxious. My whole family was anxious. Everyone was in therapy. So so I had a huge vocabulary for anxiety, depression, all all this stuff at a very young age. And I knew that anxiety looked like a lot of things in my mom, mm. including not eating, including you know, not being able to drive sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I guess I could see that. How if it's not in your day-to-day lexicon and you encounter anxiety, it could feel like a stranger. And maybe also that the stigma was affecting me in ways I didn't realize. Certainly Mm. when I was diagnosed, I felt the opposite of stigma. (laughs) I was like, very embracing of it and very interested and had no qualms about talking about it as I still do have no qualms, but there must've been something in twenties, thirties of powering through and just proving that I could handle whatever came my way. Now, again, that would then lead to migraines, which would lead to time in bed. And like, there was a whole cycle there, but I thought that was just part of what it took to solve, to get things done. I, you know, my armchair psychologist, as I was listening to you tell your story at one point, I thought she's avoidant. She would stay home from school. She would have these, and I have migraines too, and I know what it's like. A migraine allows you to check out of the world. Yeah, I go really hard on everything. I would definitely go hard, and then the migraine would force me to stop. And I went hard at everything. I mean, I was just always trying to, I don't know, almost like outsmart the system. Like, oh, I can't be a product manager. Now I'm going to be a product manager. Now I'm going to do this. I don't know. I was just never fitting into any box, but always trying to push my way through. Yeah. Were you always very driven as a kid and as a young adult? In retrospect, I think I was. At the time, it always seemed like I was just trying to take on the next step. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went to university. I did not love my university, so I graduated in two and a half years abroad. (laughs) And, you know, I in retrospect, like, yeah, that sounds like a very driven person. But I think since I always liked to laugh a lot, it wasn't like I seemed – I don't know. I wouldn't seem that different than I do now. But inside, there was some different kind of mechanism. That's what makes all this stuff so confusing. It's like very hard to talk about what's happening inside. Well, and we get so good at the outside. I mean, I love to laugh. I've always been like funny and gregarious. And I'm like a socially <laughs> anxious introvert who has clinical anxiety and panic <laughs> disorder. So like, <laughs> yep. there you go. Yeah. Because that's what we're taught. We're taught. And I mean, no offense to me, you sound like a real anxious achiever, especially graduating college in two and a half years. Oh, I definitely am. I mean, as soon as you <laughs> launched this podcast, I was like, I got to talk to more about this. I mean, I feel like I'm one of your 
archetypes. Now I've just focused it more on creating new systems. So, you know, <laughs> ERGs for mental health and, you know, been lucky enough to work in philanthropy at Pinterest as well for emotional well-being and mental health. And so I've sort of gotten a chance to redirect it into hopefully things that help other people as well. I hope. Well, I'll finish with this question. If you were the product manager for anxiety at work, what would you do? What data would you collect? Because you love data. And <laughs> what changes would you make? I'm working on those things as we speak. I mean, I dream of a metric that helps people gauge their emotional well-being when they're online. Mm. Sort of be it through what my favorite are objective realities. So I would love to have physical symptoms that help you understand what you're experiencing emotionally. Mm -hmm. That's my dream is to have like, hey, you know, all the trackers everyone is using, how do those trackers actually show you what's happening with your mental health? And I dream of a huge Wikipedia dedicated only to strategies. This is something I really want to do. So how we feel mm -hmm. has, as I mentioned, 40 strategies. I would love a million strategies that people have. I'm sure you have some golden nuggets of strategies that are then voted up as people around the world try them. And I would love to give, you know, a bunch of money to the doctor behind the diagnosis show and column on the New York Times and have her focus on mental health. <laughs> There's so I mean, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> I love that. And I think the strategies piece is really important. But I think yes. something you're highlighting that I just want to draw out for listeners is the physical tells. Your oh, body huge. was telling you something for years that your ego, yes. right? And your mind didn't want to hear. Mora, that's ex that's what I always say. Basically, 2015 was the year of my ego death, where I could finally mm. actually, that's exactly, you, you nailed it. That's right. My ego stopped me from listening to my body. It was like, if you think that you can outsmart your body, you're wrong. <laughs> it just might take longer, but like, you are your body. Th these things are united. Yeah. You can't outsmart your body. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening. <laughs>